lot of secrets that a lot of powerful people don't want told about exactly how our story was suppressed, how Joe Biden was protected from that information before the election. It's very high stakes. Today I sit down with New York Post journalist Miranda Devine, author of the 2021 book, Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech, and the dirty secrets the president tried to hide. Devine and I explore what we've learned since the New York Post first broke the story of Hunter Biden's laptop in October of 2020. I think the Biden family is a sort of a model for how China plays the long game to infiltrate into the highest reaches of American power elites. And Joe Biden was targeted very early on back in 1979. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Miranda Devine, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me, Jan. It's a very interesting time for you, I'm sure. It's it's certainly for me. Um, You know, Elon Musk has said he's going to release Twitter censorship files. Mm. We'll we'll find out what's in there sometime soon, maybe even today as we're recording. Um, At the same time, Yoel Roth, for example, is on record having said that censoring the Hunter Biden laptop story, which of course, you know, you've written about extensively um, back in October of 2020 was a mistake. And he's even said that the FBI visited Twitter much, I suppose, as they visited Facebook, like Mark Zuckerberg has said. What's your reaction to all this? Well, I guess the chickens are coming home to roost. Finally, uh, people are starting to understand that the censorship operation around the New York Post's revelations to do with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's laptop um, was so egregious that it really amounted to interference in the 2020 election. And I think there are a lot of secrets that a lot of powerful people don't want told about exactly how our story was suppressed, how Joe Biden was protected from that information before the election. And so it's very high stakes for Elon Musk uh, to to say that he's going to reveal all the details of the deliberation around that censorship operation um, and in fact he's gone further and said he he's going to reveal the whole massive censorship operation um, that Twitter was was uh, running um, against 
all sorts of dissenting voices, whether it be on, you know, the, the botched Afghanistan withdrawal or around COVID-19 vaccines or lockdowns. Um, there was a lot of information that the that big tech, the social media giants were suppressing on behalf of the federal government. And we know in particular with this story, with the Hunter Biden laptop story, that the FBI was involved. Um, we know that from FBI whistleblowers who have said that, that there was suppression of uh, detrimental information to Joe Biden within the agency. Uh, we know that they, the FBI had the laptop from 2019. And we also know that one of Hunter Biden's former business partners, a guy named Tony Bobulinski, went to the FBI before the 2020 election, handed over uh, three of his devices and gave them a, a long, you know, five hour interview about what he knew about Joe Biden's involvement in his son Hunter's overseas business deals. None of that saw the light of day. Mm. Um, Tony Bobulinski was never called uh, to testify at the grand jury in Delaware that was looking into Hunter's business dealings um, and the FBI never followed up with him. So FBI whistleblowers have told us that was deliberate, that that was a deliberate strategy to bury that information. Um, and we also know this is a, a quite a sinister um, development that we've only discovered in, in the last few months. The FBI um, went to Twitter, went to Facebook and warned them about what they said would be a dump of Russian informa uh, misinformation or disinformation um, before the 2020 election. Now, our story came three weeks before that election. And obviously, whatever the FBI had warned Twitter and Facebook about was so similar to our story that they censored it uh, within hours um, of publication. And Twitter, in fact, locked the New York Post account for two weeks up until just before the election. And then, Another sinister twist, which we've only just found out, is that the FBI had been spying on Rudy Giuliani, President Trump's uh, then personal attorney, um, for two years, since a month after he uh, took that job as Trump's attorney. And so they were had, had this covert surveillance warrant on Rudy Giuliani's cloud during the period when uh, John Paul MacIsaac, who was the laptop repair shop guy from Delaware, who had a copy of this, had had the laptop, uh, they the FBI would have seen the email that he sent to Rudy Giuliani saying, look, I'm worried about this. Um, I've tried to get the FBI to look at it. Um, this is what's in it. It's very frightening. It's dangerous for our national security. Can you tell President Trump? Uh, so they would have seen all of that. And then they also would have been able to see my text messages with um, with Rudy Giuliani, so they would have known or had access to that information, telling them when the New York Post was going to publish, and that we were absolutely fascinating and mm. completely disturbing. You know what I'm thinking right now is let's go back a little bit in time. Let's go back to those days in mid October, early yeah. October, 2020. Yeah. What was it like when that story hit and you realized that this that something wasn't going to go as planned. So tell me about that. Well, I, we knew this was a big story and it was a, a, a big, um, you know, a courageous move by the New York Post editors to publish it um, because uh, it was so close to the election. Uh, it was 
going to have an impact. It was detrimental to one of the two candidates for president. So very high stakes. We expected that there would be pushback because of that. What we didn't expect was that big tech would weigh in, would um, you know, unsheathe their claws, show the world their power, and uh, step in and censor the oldest newspaper in the country, the fourth largest by circulation, and not only do that, but be supported by the rest of the media. And, um, and then, of course, shortly after the censorship happened, um, four days after our story was published, there was a letter, uh, an open letter published by 51 former intelligence officials, high-ranking people, uh, four or five uh, directors of the CIA or acting directors of the CIA, people like Leon Panetta, uh, Michael Hayden, John Brennan, um, James Clapper. Uh, these were people who had had very high-ranking jobs and they were putting the authority of their former office to a letter that lied about our story and said that Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, that our story had all the earmarks of what they said was a Russian information operation. Um, and that was weasel words. What, they, what the world heard was that this was a Russian disinformation operation. And of course, that just um, justified big tech censorship and justified the rest of the media not touching the story. And so Joe Biden used that letter, uh, that lie about Russian disinformation in his last um, a debate against Donald Trump and he said uh, this is garbage this is just a Russian plant and it worked for him it got Joe Biden off the hook. When did you first realize something that this censorship was happening and how like what, what was happening in the newsroom? Oh, well, I mean, within hours of the story going live, we kept the story until 6am. Uh, and I think by 11am, Facebook announced on Twitter, actually, uh, that they were um, basically throttling the story, uh, pending fact checking. Um, and by the way, that fact checking never happened as far as we can ascertain, because the most obvious way you would do it is you would contact the other recipients of the emails that we were publishing um, and ask them, you know, did you get this email? And I know, having talked to uh, recipients, um, that uh, none of them got any question or phone call from Facebook. So that basic fact checking was never done. We're talking about, you know, almost two years later, um, so or more than two years later. And uh, and and so and then Twitter followed suit immediately. I guess it was more chagrin and shock that. Um, that this was happening and that people were accepting it, that, that um, there was just silence in the face of really um, egregious censorship. Uh, I guess that was our, but, but also we were busy publishing more stories that were coming out of the laptop. It was a very you know, frenetic time uh, in politics right before the election. I think you, the New York Post Twitter account was was mm. basically halted, right, so to speak, from publishing. It locked. Yes. locked for two and weeks. So, so what was the impact of that? Well, I mean, financially, it's a big impact. Both Facebook and Twitter, we were not able to do. You know, now those platforms are very big dissemination uh, avenues for newspapers and media outlets. Kayleigh McEnany, for instance, who was then President Trump's um, press secretary, she tried to share our story on Twitter, and she was locked out of her account, suspended for that. So um, they were really serious about 
uh, stopping that story being published. And of course, then we couldn't we we couldn't disseminate any of our other stories. It was it was a a, a financial penalty, um, as well as uh, I guess a slap in the face and a frightening overreach. And remember that just shortly after that. Um, uh, the, these social media platforms also de-platformed a sitting president of the United States. And that had reverberations around the world. I mean, even Emmanuel Macron, who, who you know, frowned on a lot of aspects of President Trump, he was horrified. He spoke out about that because um, these leaders know that if these unaccountable oligopolies, Facebook, Twitter, Google, if they have the power to ban, censor, deplatform a sitting president, that's uh, way too much power. By the way, I read uh, Laptop from Hell uh, I had never sat down and kind of read the whole thing through. I just did it recently. And my goodness, the amount of information you, you have in that book, it's, it's, it's you know, difficult to ingest, frankly, the, the volume. One of the things that's happened recently is Jiang Zemin, the former Chinese dictator, has passed away. And, you know, I, I see all these headlines, like uh, in the New York Times, you know, who oversaw the meteoric growth of the Chinese economy. I don't know if that's the exact headline, but something right. of these, along yeah. these lines. Um, my, my sense of, the, of this situation is this is he oversaw the compromising by the Chinese Communist Party of the global financial system, which means the U.S. financial yes. system. And when I was reading, you know, Bohai, the, the Bohai Harvest Affair, CEFC, you know, this is like, you know, kind of one of the key tools of the Chinese Communist Party to infiltrate the, the, the global system. You know, it sort of creates a picture of how this is actually done, how they do things. I thought that, that that's what I thought was most interesting, looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, I think the Biden family um, is a sort of a model for how China plays the long game to infiltrate into the highest reaches of American power elites. And Joe Biden was targeted very early on by Zemin, actually, when he was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he went on a trip to China organised by uh, Zemin uh, at that time. And he was um, met with uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party uh, top dogs and they took him to an island I can't pronounce the name, but it's um, the equivalent of Martha's Vineyard in, in China. And uh, there they plied him with information about how wonderful China was and how China was a rising democracy and was, uh, you know, embracing freedom and just wanted to, to become wealthy and, um, and that uh, China was no threat. And, of course, Joe Biden swallowed that, all of that. And it's, you know... Um, I think a great tragedy for America that a man like Joe Biden, who is, um, I would say, a hollow man without any real values, um, easily bought um, and not too bright, uh, should have been targeted um, so early by the Chinese Communist Party and have been such a useful tool to them uh, in his entire career. And now he is president, of course. And I, I mean, when in 1979, when Joe Biden came back to America, he was waxing lyrical about China and what a wonderful place it was and how it was going to be our friend. And, you know, I, I mean, one of his most famous lines was, um, you know, nothing to fear here. They're not going to eat our lunch. You know, that's a joke. Um, and 
uh, he was so gushing in his praise for China that he was mocked actually by the Weekly Standard um, at the time for his you know extreme gullibility, and um, that. That sort of love affair with China continued for Joe Biden. In uh, 2001, he was, um, you know, a, a, an influential senator. Um, I think he was still chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, and he was instrumental in uh, allowing China into the um, World Trade Organization. You know, most of the negativity was coming from his own party, from the Democrats. This was uh, during Clinton's presidency. He managed to over overcome that resistance, and so, of course. Um, that marked the sort of end of the the sort of manufacturing, um, you know, middle class of middle America. And uh, I think that, you know, Joe Biden ever since then has had this um, sort of delusion that he is somehow has some special insight into China. He was duchessed early on um, by now President Xi, when President Xi was vice president uh, under when Barack Obama was president of the US and, and Joe Biden was his vice president. And uh, so, so Biden and Xi met several times. You hear Joe Biden often boasting about the number of hours that he spent uh, with President Xi who is a chemical engineer, who is, uh, you know, whatever else you say about him, he's an intelligent uh, man. And for him to spend hours and hours talking to Joe Biden, uh, and Joe Biden, we know how he speaks. He, he talks malarkey, he tells tall tales, he big notes himself. Um, President Xi has obviously uh, studied, made a study of Joe Biden to spend so much time with him over the years. And um, for, for one reason, and that is to explore the weaknesses in America, um, to uh, satisfy himself of his own superiority, intellectual superiority and moral superiority to, to America. And uh, I think, therefore, Joe Biden has not been a good representative um, for America to earn any respect uh, you know, from China, certainly from President Xi. You know, something you mentioned uh, uh, back in 2001, you said most of the opposition came from the Democratic Party. I think that's correct. I guess mm -hmm. what I was thinking as you're describing all this is this was very much a bipartisan love affair. Yes. With the Chinese Communist Party. And I, and I think that the Chinese Communist Party was an equal opportunity uh, uh, influence peddler. You know, and still a, is. And still is. Mm -hmm. And still is. But what you describe in Laptop from Hell, which is, you know, curiously captured, you know, in some more intricate detail because of the existence of the laptop, is, I think, not the exception. It's kind of more the rule that this kind of activity happens. What do you, what do you think? That's what I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think influence peddling is a Washington disease and it's bipartisan. Um, I, I do think Joe Biden is a master at it. And uh, look, I guess because of the laptop um, and because of the, the uh, sort of Hunter Biden's former business partners who I've had the opportunity to talk to, um, and also because of the work of um, the Republican senators, um, Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson, and they're sort of tracing the money trail uh, from China, Russia, Ukraine, other countries, into um, the bank accounts in America of uh, the Biden family and their various associates. Um, I have a very good picture of exactly how 
um, Joe Biden was targeted and influenced by and used by the Chinese Communist Party um, through his family. The cover-up of this whole situation has become the big scandal. And so even as much as, the, as, as what exists on the laptop and what we know from there, what, what do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the laptop may end up being bigger than the corruption story itself it, because it involves the FBI and because of what we have learned about how, um, you know, the laptop itself um, was buried by the FBI, how the FBI then apparently... Um, you know, I and mean, we only have circumstantial evidence really, but it's certainly, um, and we'll know more when Elon Musk reveals all, but it certainly seems as if the FBI colluded with big tech to suppress the laptop before the election. And then you have the 51 former intelligence officials, these top CIA uh, directors, acting directors and so on, who are also um, whether or not they colluded with the Biden campaign and, and Democratic operatives, I don't know, but they certainly um, interjected themselves into the election campaign to dishonestly traduce the New York Post's reporting and, and say the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. So um, that was a concerted effort by the security apparatus to crush this story that was damaging to one of the two candidates for president. And, you know, I, I think it's really important to remember with this story that people talk about the Hunter Biden laptop, but it's not about Hunter Biden, who is this, you know, 52-year-old, uh, I think former, he says former drug addict, crack addict, who had um, a terrible period, uh, you know, during most of the laptop's uh, coverage of being you know, a raging crackhead, um, addicted to prostitutes, um, living this dissolute life, uh, spending vast sums of money and ricocheting around the world and hanging out with the sort of worst oligarchs and the, the sort of inner sanctum of the Chinese Communist Party, the inner sanctum of Vladimir Putin's uh, court. And so just the most bizarre and um, and sort of interesting story and a tale of great tragedy because his, um, he had his own personal demons. Um, but it's not about Hunter Biden, it's about Joe Biden. So Joe Biden had this, uh, I mean, he talks always about being the poorest man in Congress, um, but actually he lived a very lavish lifestyle, lives in you know, a beautiful mansion, always bought and sold uh, houses well above his, you know, purported salary, dresses well. His entire family, um, you know, benefited from grace and favour jobs and government sinecures and uh, scholarships and judge clerkships and so on. And Hunter Biden's role in that was to be the bag man, to be um, the, the guy who would, as in his own words, um, you know, give half his salary to his father who would, uh, in his own words, again from the laptop, um, uh, had to support the entire family and he became quite resentful of that. So I think, um, you know, the, the, the cover-up is a big story, but also you can't lose sight of the fact that this is a story about Joe Biden and that is why the cover-up was so concerted and um, people who probably would have preferred to remain in the shadows and, and not have the world know how powerful they were, 
they decided that the stakes were so high at the 2020 election that they revealed themselves. You know, and the other part that's very interesting that is kind of exposed by this because, of course, CFC kind of collapses when Chairman Ye, who heads it, gets kind of rolled up in one of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaigns because Ye was a Jiang Zemin loyalist. And this mm -hmm. is, you know, so basically uh, Hunter Biden gets caught up in the internal political struggles of the Chinese Communist Party, probably not, not realizing that, that, that this sort of thing is going on. And so anyway, I, I, I thought it was fascinating to see that manifest. As that whole thing is being rolled up, you have this sort of play-by-play -play that, that in, you know, in the book, it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to see how that plays out. Yes, well, CFC, as you say, was the capitalist arm of President Xi's Belt and Road Initiative. And um, during the last two years of Joe Biden's president, uh, vice presidency, um, the Biden family and their various American associates were working for CFC um, all around the world, in the Middle East, in Europe, um, places like Romania, um, to, um, to you know, help China by infrastructure, by energy assets. And a lot of these countries by then were a bit loath to um, allow themselves to be taken over by China effectively. And so um, what the Biden family name um, gave them was invaluable. It, it, it reassured these uh, countries that, um, uh, you know, that they wouldn't be just swallowed up in debt traps as China had been doing around the world, that this was a, the vice president of the United States was in partnership with this company. So it had to be, uh, had to be good. And it, uh, that opened a lot of doors. And well, this is what the family implied, like the, because Biden himself was not out there making these guarantees, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so that's the interesting thing. You know, the Republicans in the House are now having investigations um, uh, into the, the this whole affair, and um, they've been at pains to point out that this they're investigating Joe Biden's involvement in his family's influence peddling scheme. And Joe Biden told the American people during the campaign and ever since that he knew nothing about his son Hunter's overseas business dealings, but there is just copious evidence on the laptop that he met with numerous, uh, you know, at least a dozen of Hunter Biden's overseas business partners, um, you know, from China, from uh, Kazakhstan, from Russia, from Ukraine. And um, he met them in Beijing, he invited them into his vice presidential residence in Washington, D.C. He had a dinner, uh, at least one dinner at Cafe Milano in Georgetown. Um, Hunter organised one, I think it was in April of 2015, for his father to meet his business partners from Kazakhstan um, and Russia and Ukraine. And uh, the Biden campaign denied that when we um, published uh, news of that meeting, at least with the Ukrainian before the election campaign. Um, since then, the White House um, has admitted that, yes, Joe Biden did attend that dinner, but, uh, you know, he only was there briefly, they said, and not for any nefarious purpose. Um, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. He was there. So Joe Biden did meet with these people, therefore was participating in that demonstration that is important to um, you know, influence peddling partners, people who are buying influence, that yes, the important person um, uh, is involved, is you're able to get 
get him to come to a dinner. Uh, you're able to get him on the phone. And, you know, even if Joe Biden um, doesn't, uh, you know, speak specifically about, uh, we've never heard from anybody, including Tony Bobulinski, Hunter's former business partner, that Joe Biden ever addressed specifically any favours that he was going to, to give to anyone. He always spoke at a, quote, high level. Um, he still was meeting these people. He still was demonstrating his availability. Um, and so I think that's the way the Chinese, and in fact, all influence peddling operations operate, but particularly in China, um, it was very obvious to uh, Chinese eyes what was going on when Joe Biden as vice president flew into Beijing on Air Force Two with his son Hunter Biden in tow. Um, this was, uh, you know, American um, power come to do private business. and. Uh, Hunter Biden was what Chinese refer to as a princeling. So you're not stupid enough to give the bribe straight to the powerful person. Uh, you give it to their family members. That's what happens in China. And so that was how the Chinese saw Hunter Biden's appearance. To American eyes, um, you know, there were a few questions about it, but Joe Biden just dismissed those questions as saying, well, he's a good family man. He's very close to his family. He likes to bring along family members on his overseas trips. Um, that's a convenient cover story for what really, when you look at the pattern, the pattern of Hunter Biden's involvement and access to the powerful people overseas that his father was meeting, um, you see a pattern of corruption that's unmistakable. What do you think Elon Musk's revelation of the Twitter censorship files, which I, I keep calling them that in my head, what do you think will come out of that? What do you expect? Look, what I would like to see and what we can't get out of Facebook, um, I've asked them and I've asked the FBI, um, exactly what did the FBI tell you to look out for when they warned of a dump of Russian disinformation before the 2020 election? Um, I have actually asked Facebook um, a few questions. I said, did they mention Joe Biden? Did they mention Hunter Biden? Did they mention a laptop? The answer I got back was they did not mention Hunter Biden. So that implied to me, well, they, they mentioned Joe Biden. You didn't say they didn't. They mentioned a laptop. Um, that's the question. I'm hoping Elon Musk will tell us the exact date, how, how soon before um, our story was published, did the FBI go and warn Twitter? And what exactly did they warn them to look out for? Um, I think the more specific those warnings were, um, and my suspicion is that they were quite specific because Twitter and Facebook so quickly were able to censor our story, recognise it as the information that they'd been warned about. I'm interested to know if um, that information was so specific, it could only have come from their um, surveillance of Rudy Giuliani. Do you think there's any possibility that the FBI was had by someone, that they were, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, misdirected about this information, you know? How so? 
if they're coming and saying there's going to be this Russian disinformation, oh, yeah. someone someone came to them and showed them information that so yes, there's going to be this Russian disinformation operation. I think if there was a misdirection, it would have been internal to the FBI, mm. um, and and I I think that because of what. Um, FBI whistleblowers have told us mm. who also have come forward to um, Senate Republicans and House Republicans um, and told their stories and um, what they've told us is that uh, internally there were a number of um, well there was at least one analyst and one agent now who uh, the agent has left Timothy Tebow um, who were telling other agents not to look at the Bobolinsky material, um, and 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 put uh, put that information and perhaps other information uh, into a sort of a black box where it couldn't be accessed, and effectively buried it, um, and told other agents who might have investigated it that that it was disinformation. Um, I'm not sure exactly what happened with the laptop. Um, because that was given to the FBI by John Paul MacIsaac, the laptop repair shop owner in December of 2019. And he had a really um, difficult time with the FBI. Um, at first, uh, they wouldn't accept it. Um, his father was sort of threatened uh, when he went to the FBI, um, telling them about it and saying that, that his son wanted to um, passed this information on and was concerned from a national security standpoint. He was concerned about the Ukraine material. Um, and his father was felt that he was being threatened when he went to an FBI office um, that, that the person he spoke to said, well, you know, effectively, um, you know, your son shouldn't have this information, whereas his son had had the laptop perfectly legally because Hunter Biden had not paid his $85 bill and had signed a receipt saying that if he didn't pick it up in 90 days, it became the property of the laptop shop. So, um, so that was sort of a bit off-putting. And then what was really off-putting for John Paul Mac Isaac is that when finally two FBI agents came um, to his shop to pick up the laptop and a copy of the hard drive um, and left behind a, a receipt for it, um, they said to him, or a subpoena actually, they, uh, one of them turned and said to him, uh, in our experience, nothing happens to people who basically keep their mouths shut. Um, and he wasn't quite sure whether that was a warning, but he was discomforted by it. Mm -hmm. And when he initially told me about it, I thought, you're a little bit paranoid. Um, and I understand why, I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of pressure on whistleblowers. And in my experience, quite often they do get a bit paranoid. So I sort of dismissed his concerns. But now looking two years later, as we've seen more and more information about the cover-up, um, the, the internal sort of misdirection from the FBI, um, the suppression of this, uh, the laptop and the Bobolinsky material, um, I, and, and what the whistleblowers have been telling us about really the politicisation of the Washington field office, now I'm more inclined to believe John Paul MacIsaac's instinct, which was that he was being warned to keep his mouth shut. Um, are you still in touch with him? 
Oh yes, a lot. In fact, he's um, just published a terrific book called American Injustice, and it's his story of um, of you know his involvement. He went from being you know a very quiet, a quietly successful um, small businessman in in a nice part of Delaware who. Um, you know, had, had a five-star reviews on Apple for his, his um, computer repair shop um, to becoming uh, a pariah in that area. Um, he, as he said and as he was told, the, the Bidens controlled Delaware and so he could no longer work there. He had to flee to Colorado, shut his shop up. He hasn't had a shop since and um, he's been in financial doldrums. So uh, I do hope his book does well. You're, you're probably in touch with some of these other characters that are that are in a laptop from hell. Yeah. And so do they believe that this whole, you know, situation, especially this cover up will be, you know, sort of exposed that this was a reality? Do they think there will be some sort of justice? I think there are varying opinions. Um, uh, if you talk to, say, Tony Bobolinsky, who really um, is a hero, along with John Paul MacIsaac, who put himself out there um, before the election to tell the American people what he knew about Joe Biden's involvement in this scheme. Uh, he's a, a, a patriot, he's a naval veteran, um, and he was concerned particularly about China and about um, what he saw as the potential for the president, Joe Biden, being compromised by China. Um, he was very exercised by that. He had everything to lose. He's a successful businessman with a young family. He didn't want to become public and he hasn't since then um, been very public, been as little in the public eye as he can be, but he feels honour bound to um, make sure that the American people and um, the congressional investigators have all the information they need to expose, at least expose, uh, China's role in trying to, to uh, sort of influence the top echelons of American politics. Um, so, and then others uh, of Hunter's former business partners, I think, um, are adopting a wait and see attitude. They understand the power of the Bidens. I mean, he is president of the United States. Um, and they uh, are, are probably a little afraid of that. To a, to a man, um, they feel betrayed and let down. Um, their involvement with Hunter has been nothing but trouble for them. Um, I mean, in, in one case, Devin Archer was Hunter Biden's best friend in business. He's now facing a, a, a jail term and uh, an enormous um, loss of, I mean, everything he's worked for, his, you know, his houses, his entire family wealth. I think he has a $40 million judgment against him. Um, so he's, that's on appeal at the moment. But he's really, for someone who was told by Hunter Biden um, that you're, you're an honorary Biden, you're part of the family, we never let you down, um, he's been let down by the Biden family. I think perhaps, I mean, not that I've been told this, but um, uh, perhaps he felt that he was in line, could be pardoned by Joe Biden, but Hunter Biden refuses to take his calls. He's just been cast adrift. And so I think that's the way a lot of these people feel that um, the Bidens will look after their own, but everyone else who was loyal to them uh, and help them make money um, is thrown to the wolves. What are you working on these days? <laughs> well, I must say I'm very interested in the, um, the 
goings on in the FBI, particularly the politicisation of the Washington field office. Every day there's a new revelation there. Uh, I talk to various whistleblowers, um, including um, well, one I can name because he came came public, um, a, an agent called Steve Friend, who um, you know blew the whistle on really nefarious activities within abuse of authority within the FBI, some very questionable case practices when it came to um, the, the, prosecu or the, the pursuit of January 6 um, people. And uh, he felt that this was really untoward and, and a violation of people's um, constitutional rights and he didn't want to be involved in it. And so he um, raised concerns with his superiors and from then on he was punished until now he's on suspension without pay and he's gone public um, and so he also were, uh, was able to put me in touch with people and tell me a little about the politicization of the Washington field office which was involved in the suppression of the Hunter Biden material so I guess the the Hunter Biden story has has brought me into a wider story about the, the sort of internal, what, what you have to call corruption of the FBI politicisation. So that's that's something I'm interested in. I'm also interested in, um, you know, big tech, the power of big tech. Uh, Elon Musk is a never ending source of interest and news. After all of this, right, we have CBS, you know, for example, two years later admitting, well, in fact, yes, this, we, we verified it finally. I think that's maybe what the story yeah. was. Um, but th there were a lot of these headlines that used, for example, that, that story with the 51 intelligence officials, including five, you know, leaders mm. of the intelligence agencies, who said it was all the hallmarks or earmarks, earmarks, earmarks yeah. of Russian disinformation, but... But the headlines didn't say that. The headlines were a little more direct. And I, I haven't seen any retractions yet. Have you? No. I mean, it's just like with the Russia collusion stories um, that the New York Times and the Washington Post won Pulitzer Prizes for uh, that turned out to be completely bogus. And they never retract or go back. Um, there might be a bit of stealth editing, but they will never admit that they were wrong. There was some excuse, I think, before the election for media organisations to be a bit wary uh, if they didn't have the laptop, hadn't had the time that we had had the you know, advance notice of being able to do the due diligence on the material that we were publishing. Um, but there was no excuse for the New York Times, etc. New York Times was the first out of the, the box um, to wait 19 months before they wrote a very minor admission that the laptop was real, that the information was true. Um, and, and that was buried in the 19th paragraph of a story which really was just about rehearsing Hunter Biden's defences um, in this case in Delaware where he's being invest investigated by um, the uh, US attorney there for alleged you know, offences such as money laundering and tax evasion and um, FARA violations. Uh, he, from what we understand, um, has paid back the IRS $2.8 million in back taxes. Uh, that, by the way, was lent to him by um, an, an entertainment attorney he's become friendly with called Kevin Morris in Los Angeles. But I, I, I just feel that it's too little too late and in all of these stories it's a more like they're just you know 
covering themselves because they know that at some point Hunter is either going to be indicted or enter into a plea deal with the US attorney in Delaware. And so they will have to explain to their readers why um, they'd been kept in the dark all this time. So they sort of did a limited hangout, uh, enough information about Hunter Biden's troubles, his legal issues um, to, to, you know, say that they've, they've covered the story, but there's always a paragraph buried in each story that's almost identical across the different media organisations, which um, absolves Joe Biden. It says, Joe Biden, there's no evidence that he had anything to do with this. And, and that's so ridiculous because there's so much evidence. Um, that's what it's all about. That's what my book was all about. Um, not about Hunter Biden and his travails. It was about Joe Biden and his influence in the family's influence peddling scheme around the world when he was vice president, abusing his authority, putting America's national security at risk. We have this kind of tribalism or hyper-partisanship in the US to the point where if you're, you know, if you're on the wrong team, even if you're wrong, yeah. you're still supported, yeah. right? And I know, you know, we've talked about this before, like, you know, neither of us are feel, feel particularly partisan in, in, in what we're doing, but, you know, a lot of people might say we are. Mm. Uh, how do you? What do you make of this whole phenomenon, and how you know? How do we deal with it as a country? I, I think it's a function of a sort of a uniparty that um, has grown up in cosy Washington. Um, I think corruption is a, a big part of that. Um, you know, you don't rock the boat, I won't rock the boat. We'll all have our cosy little deals, and we won't tell on each other and it'll all be fine. The only losers are the American people. Um, you know, on both sides, you have politicians who enter Congress without much money and leave multimillionaires, uh, whether it be for, through insider trading or influence peddling or whatever other little schemes they have going. Uh, so the grift is very strong in Washington, D.C. And um, I think that leads to um, policy um, blurring between the parties. And into that, in 2016, stomped Donald Trump. And he wasn't part of the swamp. And for all his personal flaws, for all his clumsiness and mistakes in office, he really did expose that sort of uniparty corruption, the, 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 the sort of deep state bureaucracy, which operated regardless um, of which party was in power, which operated to its own, um, you know, agenda. And that was not necessarily um, in Americans' best interests. You know, it's a globalist agenda. Um, and so uh, I think Americans who saw their, their standard of living, their culture being eroded over the years had become disillusioned with the establishment Republican Party. And that was why they went for a barbarian, Donald Trump, who was going to go in there and break it all up. And uh, I think that just reflected a real failing on the part of the Republican Party and should have been a wake up call to them. I'm not sure if it has been. Um, but that's the polarization. It's not just a polarization between Democrats and Republicans. It's between the sort of globalist elites and regular middle class or formerly middle class Americans who feel that their country is being sold out from under them and, uh, and, and feel really desperate and, and, and uh, 
and angry about it. And the polarization comes from their anger, their mistrust of the institutions um, and the elites uh, condescension and patronizing attitude towards them. When Hillary Clinton talked about deplorables, um, she wasn't just reflecting a Democrat sensibility, she was reflecting the sensibility of the bipartisan, bicoastal elites. Best case scenario in coming years, what would you, what, what would you like to see happen to try to shift this reality that you're well, I think two things have to happen. One is that Washington has to clean up as much as possible the corruption. It's an incredibly corrupt town. Uh, I'm shocked at the corruption. Um, and I hope that the Republicans are resolute uh, and have integrity and do pursue this investigation of Joe Biden. Because even if it doesn't result in you know, any criminal charges, or I, I, do, I certainly don't expect that that would happen. But at least it will expose and, uh, and, and let's hope create some safeguards against um, this kind of influence peddling operation continuing in Washington. And, you know, protecting Americans from the malign influence of particularly our greatest adversary, China. Um, and so that's one thing, cleaning up Washington. And secondly, I would hope that, you know, the, the one benefit, I guess, of uh, the Trump reign was that it really opened people's eyes up to, um, to the sort of detrimental influence of um, the, the sort of bipartisan, you know, elite, malign, globalist elite uh, in America. And so, uh, Trump was sort of, he was the, the titular leader of the populist nationalist movement, but that existed before him and it will continue after him. So I would hope that there would be a Republican leader who will carry that, um, that movement forward, but in a, a much less polarizing way, in a much cleverer way, not allowing himself to be um, taken down and destroyed in the way that, that Trump kind of naively did. Uh, his, his administration was really crippled from the beginning by um, the FBI uh, spying on him and intervening and, and uh, attacking his various people in his uh, orbit. And um, I think that I'm not choosing anyone who it could be, but I think that there will be younger Republican leaders that come up in that vein who will learn from the lessons of Trump and be able to lead the country and possibly unite the country. I think Joe Biden's election in part was driven, perhaps mainly was driven by a desire by the great swath of Americans in the middle who just wanted to be unified again, to have peace and calm and tranquility. Uh, America is, uh, you know, a very sociable and good natured country. And, uh, Joe Biden promised that. He promised to be a unifying president. Uh, unfortunately, he's been the opposite. He's been a very divisive and malignant force, um, demonizing Republicans, demonizing the opposition, talking about semi-fascist, ultra-maga, uh, you know, locking up his political opponents, sicking the DOJ onto parents at school board meetings or any kind of dissenters. Um, politicizing the FBI and the DOJ and um, and you know weaponizing social media against his political adversaries 
Uh, I think that's been really destructive. And I do believe that Americans have within them the ability to uh, turn back that, that hatred and polarisation and unite around a, um, you know, a, a real statesman, stateswoman, um, who can, can perhaps move forward and unify the country. What's to prevent, you know, this, uh, let's call it the megaphone, mm -hmm. right, from deciding that the next, let's say, Republican leader is, is evil and basically creating the same sort of um, polarize, intensifying the polarization that, that we see today? Look, you're, you're spot on because you can see it already with the demonization of uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is spoken about as the, the sort of presumptive heir to, to Trump. Um, and uh, he is much smarter though, you know, than Trump. I think he's learned from Trump. Um, he's, he punches back just as hard, but he also is on top of the detail. And um, so from that point of view, I think he won't allow the narrative to uh, catch on and catch him, catch him out and damage him as much. Um, I think also during the Trump era, a lot of people became disillusioned with the media. I think trust in the media has plummeted to an all-time low. So there is less influence there. Um, and also social media, you know, I, I, I hate to put um, a lot of faith in Elon Musk. You know, he's a mere mortal, he's a billionaire with, you know, lots of um, his own personal foibles and agendas. And, and exposure to China. And exposure to China, absolutely, with yeah. Tesla. Um, yes, so, so, you know, he's certainly not the messiah, but um, at least he's sort of given us an idea of, uh, of, of, what freedom of speech in social media can do. You know, it allows the truth to be told. It allows real-time fact-checking um, of lies that unfortunately are propagated uh, and created, these dishonest narratives, by the establishment elite media and the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, NBC. Um, I mean, it's disgraceful and also in conjunction with, in collusion with the security apparatus. That's what we saw with the, F with the um, Russia collusion hoax. That was seeded by, um, you know, deep state intelligence officials. And it's frightening um, that the media just uh, gullibly swallowed that without doing any of their own checking. It was all a lie. The Steele dossier was a lie and they won Pulitzer Prizes for it. I think the faith in that is plummeting. And I think, um, you know, if the Republicans can get hold of social media um, uh, and break up its power um, and, and somehow prevent one side of politics from being able to control it, um, then that could be good. But it sort of depends on the Republican Party getting its act together. And I think that's a very big if at the moment. Well, Miranda Devine, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Miranda Devine and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek.